is backroom politics. And good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is backroom politics, live from Washington, D.C., usually from the National Press Club, but today we are broadcasting live from TG Cigars, 1118 9th Street Northwest, here in the nation's capital. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, uh, he is the former, uh, wait a minute, former Veep, the former Vice President, oh, Joe Biden, former Joe Biden political operative and a bar certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. He is Dan Lipner, Esquire. Dan, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well after a long weekend of tapping Trump's phones. I know. <laughs> Apparently, take a number. Apparently, everybody's doing it. And joining me as he does every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate staffer, a longtime Washington insider, and a very distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the man that we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Hey, and joining us, we have a special guest today. Joining us today, he is the former director of international economics for the Obama administration, national security expert, and bar certified attorney in the District of Columbia. He is David Mortlock. David, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is fantastic. We have so much we have to get to, but you're probably wondering, why do I have... David Mortlock on the show. David Mortlock's uh, credentials include doing national econ- uh, international economic and international security advisement to the Obama uh, uh, administration. Did that for several years. But we've got to ask the question. In case you have been living under a rock, President Trump over the weekend put out a tweet based on a Breitbart report from what we can gather that basically accused President Obama and the Obama administration of tapping the Trump phones in Trump Tower to gain political intelligence is the only way we can put it uh, against Donald Trump. Donald Trump has provided no backup. He's provided no sourcing for this. It seems to have come out of nowhere based on a Breitbart report, which was Originally, it appears started by an alt-right radio host that put this out there, but it, it just seems illogical that we're dealing with this. On top of the fact that we're dealing with so many other things, travel ban 2.0, the continued Russia problems, and oh, by the way, the GOP put out a health care replacement for Obamacare. We're going to talk about all that, but let's get to the meat of this. Let's talk about the Trump phone tax accusation. First of all, I want to go to you, David Morlock. David, first of all, the, the accusations that we're hearing about are for a lot of different uh, agencies, a lot of different uh, concepts around as to how this happened. The one concept we're hearing is that this was probably done under a FISA court-ordered tax. First of all, what is FISA as the way you see it? So, uh, so Justin, these are all really good questions, uh, which we can talk about for a long time because there's much speculation to be had. We've only got a half hour second. We, okay, I will, I will speculate <laughs> briefly then. Uh, but it, essentially, um, uh, well, first of all, I think we should agree that um, the question posed on the uh, show last week 
Uh, was Tuesday night's speech a pivot towards a, a truly presidential administration? Uh, well, um, turns out we could do a much shorter show on that now. Uh, but I will say, I mean, look, so, so there are three possibilities, right? Uh, number one, uh, well, four possibilities. Again. Number one, there was a FISA warrant. And what is FISA? FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Court, which essentially uh, is authorized in a classified setting to grant authorization uh, for uh, surveillance uh, of those acting on behalf of a foreign agent. So uh, you've got to have two things involved there. You've got to have uh, law enforcement belief that someone is acting on behalf of a foreign agent and uh, that information is necessary as part of that investigation. And the second thing is you've got to have a Article Three judge sign off on that warrant. Uh, so that's one possibility. Uh, the other possibility is there is a criminal investigation. And again, an Article Three judge has uh, granted uh, uh, authorization for domestic warrants uh, for, for criminal uh, uh, criminal investigation. Um, the third possibility is a conspiracy where none of these procedures were followed and um, many, many people were committing crimes in order to surveil Donald Trump for some reason. Uh, and the third possibility is it's not true at all. So let's go back to the basic idea, the premise of a, of a phone tap. There are, there are the two logical ways or the two legal ways that this happens. It is one through FISA court, which is top secret. Nobody knows about even to talk about there being an application for a warrant is top secret unto itself. The other is, an, is a type three tap, which is what we see in mafia movies. That's issued by a court. And there's got to, but in both situations, there has to be probable cause to issue said warrant. Is that true? That is true. So is there any idea that, or is there any possibility of there being probable cause in your experience in working with the courts and the such situation? Is, is there any situation that you see that would grant the Obama administration probable cause to get a FISA warrant or a Category 3 warrant? Well, the irony is we wouldn't know, right? If it, if it is uh, secret, if it is classified um, and remains classified, then it would not be public. There's only, uh, there is one person with absolute authority, uh, declassification authority, and that's the president. Alan Moore, let me go to you. Does, does it shock you, one, that the president would make this accusation without having backup, and two, does, does he care the fact that it's his word and his word is gold amongst his followers? Well, so let me say, let, let, let me start by saying that, that, uh, who's talking here? Alan, you are. You are. You're getting your feedback, Alan. Yeah, that's, that's what's happening. I don't need to hear myself a second time. Um, but, uh, even though what I say may be very worthy. Um, so it, 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 I couldn't help reflecting on the fact that, that since our last, uh, well, in a period of four days, the, the administration of Donald Trump had its high point and its low point. Um, the high point obviously being the speech, which we talked about last week, the, the speech before Congress. 
the low point being this tweet Saturday morning. Um, let, let me say, we don't know what hit the source of information is. It's probably or certainly possibly uh, the Breitbart, but it's not, we don't know that for certain. Um, were they seeking political intelligence, as Justin suggested? That seems possible, but not likely, if there was uh, some kind of surveillance that, that had, had gone on with, a, uh, uh, w- with the requirement just described of a FISA court granting, uh, granting the power. Um, there was one other piece of information over the course of uh, the the last week or so, and that is that Congressman Adam Schiff of California, who is the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, uh, seems to be uh, a constant presence uh, on television, which is a, a singularly odd thing for a senior uh, member of an intelligence committee to be. And he made a comment um, that, uh, perhaps inadvertent, where he made a reference to the fact that he was very interested in seeing um, the contents of surveillance um, in, in the latter stages of the campaign. It's not clear what he was referring to and what former Attorney General of the United States, uh, Michael Mukasey, said was it sure sounded like he knew something about some kind of surveillance. At any rate, we don't know what the basis of the president's comments is, all, uh, uh, what, what the source was. Uh, his, his spokespeople who've been willing to say uh, seem to enjoy saying, we don't know everything that he knows, and he has the highest of all clearances and he may have some other information that's not generally available. I'm not saying that he knows because as we we well know he can be careless. He can be he can jump to conclusions. Um those are the things that seem to have been in play here, but we ought not get ahead of ourselves and convince ourselves that that was the case. Let me go back to David Mortlock for a second going off of what you were saying, Alan. The, the, the situation that Allen brings up with Congressman Schiff, the ranking member on the House Intelligence Subcommittee, it would make sense with the president being the ultimate authority on declassification or classification that if he did have evidence, he would immediately want to disclose that evidence to the public. Is that logical? Uh, yes, I think if you didn't want to look like a liar, you would put out the evidence you had. I mean, let you know. Look, I mean, let's not. But, but let me just interrupt you real quick. The, the fact that Alan brought up the fact that that Congressman Schiff, the ranking Democrat on the committee, has been making his rounds on the on the on the talking head circuit, does that lend some credibility that there might be something there? Well, look, I've never seen a congressman who didn't want to get in front of a TV camera, so I don't think there's anything <laughs> too odd about that. Um, but, uh, you know, look, I mean, we've heard from someone who has said, no, we've heard from Jim Clapper, who has come out and said, uh, you know, look, these, these things are very often when you're dealing with classified information, even within government, because there's, there's so much um, material at the top secret level that is SCI that only a few people have access to. It's very difficult to piece together something, say, definitively, 
uh, whether it is false. But here we have a situation where Jim Clapper said, I would have known and no, there was not. And, you know, frankly, I mean, that's the most definitive statement uh, we've ever heard from an intelligence official uh, in history. Um, and I think, you know, I think if, if that's not true, then there must have been a massive criminal conspiracy. And if Donald Trump has information about that, the American public needs to know. Alan Moore, this, this covers a huge, broad spectrum, if you will, as far as you know, on one end, if what Donald Trump is saying, if what the president is saying is true, we have one of the bigger abuse of authority out there since maybe Nixon and Watergate goes. On the other hand, we have a president that is just disclosing information that's categorically not true. Does damage his credibility as president of the United States? Is there a middle ground here that we're missing? Well, <laughs> there's no there's no obvious middle ground. I mean, I, I suppose that there, there are two things that occurred here. Um, uh, the suggestion that there was uh, some kind of surveillance that occurred on on Trump related offices. It would presumably have been campaign offices that happened to be in Trump Tower uh, over the, court, the, the in the late stages of the campaign. Um, that, that's that's the most that's the most likely um, area of possible surveillance. We don't know if that was true. It doesn't look like it. Let's acknowledge that. I mean, I agree with uh, I agree with David there. I think that that Clapper was careful to say that that he likely would have known and and there was none. But he doesn't automatically know about every single one. I don't mean to pick nits here. I'm just trying to be as factual as I can. He, he, he was certainly not, he, he, he basically said, I should know. And there wasn't one. Um, but I think there are a couple of agencies that could do one that he wouldn't know about. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Let me, let me quickly say, but so there, there's two pieces to this though. Was there surveillance done a and B if there was, which is still possible, if unlikely, could the president have ordered it? Because he charged the president, President, the, 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 uh, president Obama, um, with having done this and called him a sick or bad guy. Now, that seems even doubly far-fetched because the president does not have the power to do that as as David described, you have to get a, a, a warrant from this so-called FISA court. The president can't just order this up. This has been the law ever since the late 70s, so when we know there were abuses during uh, the President Nixon's term of service and, and post-Watergate. So it was, it, was a, it was doubly troubling, this accusation, which is why I referred to it at the beginning as the for me, the low point of the the of President Trump's uh, new administration coming only four days after the high point, which was a you know decently uh, written, decently delivered uh, speech uh, before the joint session of Congress. So the, the, we're not we're not done here. The president has gone uncharacteristically silent. What we may hear 
going forward, uh, what I would myself would certainly welcome would be some a some clarification and perhaps an apology that <laughs> to the president, to the former president. Believe me, those two guys need each other. Um, but Trump needs Obama more than Obama needs Trump. But I think they both. Uh, care about the country and can be helpful to each other. So what we don't need is some kind of a pissing match, um, at least in one direction, um, for, b- between those two guys. Um, and a- an apology for suggesting that the president did something which would have constituted a felony uh, and, a, and an illegal conspiracy involving other people as well. And maybe say, let's find out if any surveillance had occurred and what that was all about. Again, Dan I don't Littner. think there was any, but that would be the question. Dan Littner, let me go to you. It would make sense to me that the Democrats would be even more so than they may have been, or maybe I'm not hearing it, calling the president to declassify and disclose the sources. Am I wrong in that? Dan Lipner. No, Dan Lipner. Okay. He's speechless. He's, he's speechless, <laughs> apparently. Uh, Dan Lipner, if you can hear us, call us back in or try the link again. Um, but uh, David Mortlock, let me go to you. Does that make sense? Why are the Democrats not calling for the president to declassify this? Or does that open up a genie's bottle to other FISA warrants that would have to be declassified? Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I think Alan makes some really great points about why this is so far-fetched and you know a lot of the a lot of the reporting on this seems to be incredibly naive about well you know did it happen what's the likelihood of that happening you know i heard uh, uh cbs say uh, i think it was yesterday morning you know the truth is quite hard to discern um i mean is it really no it's it's really not if it were true um trump could could demonstrate or, or at least tell the people who work for him why he thinks it's true, which apparently he has not done. Um, and, you know, I think, um, I mean, you know, look, um, appoint a special prosecutor, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, what, what I find most astonishing about Donald Trump and this entire sort of alternative reality that we've been living in for the last 18 months is, you know, he said so many things that are blatant falsehoods. You know, the, the, the birth certificate, uh, three to five million uh, illegal people voting. Um, I mean, gosh, the Gitmo uh, tweet from this morning that was immediately proven untrue. None of it falls in the seat. There's no consequences. So, frankly, why wouldn't you keep doing it? It got him elected president. This maybe eventually is one that might backfire. You know, if there is, he's creating more smoke that needs through investigation, and frankly, pushing the Republicans on the Hill into a corner by making accusations like this that must be investigated. Dan Lipner, does does appointing a special prosecutor under the new special prosecutor's rule, does that make sense for Donald Trump, or does he just fire up his base and let this die off until the next tweet he puts out? Well, the real question is not whether or not it makes sense for Donald Trump, but whether or not it's dangerous for Donald Trump. So part of his fear is, and I'm linking this to the widely reported uh, how upset the president was at Jeff Sessions excusing himself from anything related to the campaign. 
that it would seem to me that if there is something there he has to hide, that Jeff Sessions was his last best hope for a backstop to stop any investigation. Sessions being removed from the playing field could be seen as a problem for the president. And now he has no defense other than um, waiting to see what happens and hoping something isn't found. I mean, that's what it looks like to me with the nature of how he is feeling against it. So, Dan, let, yeah, let me push you on that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal Justin's prerogative here and, and ask the question. Um, but let me push you on that, which is, you know, to me, Sessions' recusal means very little. Right? It, it was a very savvy move to deflect the accusations of perjury, um, or at least the fact he was, was untruthful. Um, we got a bit, of a bit of a breeze back there. Um, it, it, you know, I, I, that was a very savvy way to change the narrative. I think um, the... But, but I don't think it actually uninsulates, if that's a real word, uh, Donald Trump at all. He's got congressional Republicans on the Hill that are, that are carrying his water. I mean, Devin Nunes uh, could not be uh, more blatant about it. He's got an entire rest of the Justice Department that works for him. He's got a uh, deputy attorney general nominee that's on the Hill tomorrow. And he's got the entire apparatus uh, of the White House and the rest of the executive branch that he controls and instructs and that work for him. Um, I, I see very little difference made by Sessions' recusal to that insulation around the president. Dan Lipner. Well, my point would be it's smart for Sessions, and we've sort of seen this in the Trump administration before. The professional politicos that basically know how to handle themselves and handle themselves properly or, or get out of, a, out of an awkward situation, as Sessions did by sending written clarifications to his remarks uh, during his confirmation hearings, as opposed to appearing before the Senate again. That is a very savvy political move. Uh, without him needing to say, I, I have been involved or have not been involved, he is clarifying his statements to to clarify the record, which is, I, I don't like Jeff Sessions for doing that in the least. It seems like a very smart political move. However, if you are Donald Trump and a Assuming for the sake of argument that there is actually fire where the smoke is and you're trying to cover something up, your biggest ally, your first person to opt into the campaign of any substance, that being Jeff Sessions, a longtime senator from Alabama and an early, uh, an, an early Trumper, him leaving the playing field arguably leaves some exposure. So that's the question that uh, – that is still floating out there because he's no longer there to be, be a defender of the president. Comey has been has been a strong advocate, not for either Democrat nor Republican, but of the FBI and of what they do. So the question is, who else is there? While the House Republicans have been carrying the water for the president, Senate Republicans have been a little iffier. So it's to be seen what happens next. So, Alan Moore, let me, let me put this question to you. You know, we, we were talking about uh, the Attorney General, former Senator Sessions, recusing himself. I mean, my understanding is that his, his recusing himself was based more on the Russian question 
rather than the, the phone tap question, or are they intertwined? Well, so the, the, the origin of the recusal was the fact that he was involved in the campaign. He did have, uh, we know, one meeting and one conversation uh, with, the, uh, with the Russian ambassador, which dated to the Republican convention, and then a meeting. We also, I think, know, and we could certainly debate this, that the, and, and this is what he wrote in his comment back to the committee to explain um, what he was, the, the question he was answering in, in the 11th hour, by the way, the 11th full hour of his, uh, his uh, uh, hearing that day at the confirmation, that what, what the question he heard and that he answered was whether uh, during the campaign, um, in the meeting, in effect, in his office, that, that uh, they talked about the campaign. And they did not, which was why he answered the way he answered. Now, the, 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 the question that Franken asked didn't even ask that. Uh, Franken just asked what the, the, if he was a attorney general, how he would handle um, the possibility of members of the campaign having conversations about the campaign with senior members of, the, of, of Russian intelligence. He chose to simply go on and say, I certainly didn't. And as far as what others would, I'm not sure what I would do. In effect, saying I'd have to know more about it. Um, when, when it turned out that he had, the, he had, he had, had two meetings, it appeared that he was saying he'd never had a meeting. Well, if <laughs> it's kind of stupid, let's face it. If he has a meeting in his own office, has a couple of senior armed services committee staff people, they were both uh, military colonels, I believe, sitting in the room. You know, it's not like it was a secret meeting in a in a in a downtown hotel. It's pretty obvious to me that what Sessions was a, was answering was a different kind of question, and. He's got he he got himself into hot water for it. Uh, accusations of lying, of perjury, were just going crazy uh, all around town. Everybody piling on, and the president was really angry that in the aftermath of his uh, the the afterglow of his address to Congress, there's this question about did. Uh, did Sessions lie? Should he recuse? Should he step down? Um, the, uh, the 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 Republic, the Democrats were just jumping all over that with glee, trying to get him out of the job, which they failed to do uh, in the nor- in the normal process. And I think his his notion, the president's behavior and stuff, is to stonewall, never give an inch, say no strike back with some other accusation and what interrupted his own long-term instinct and behavior was that that lo and behold in the midst of all of this sessions decided to recuse himself um sessions says people have discredited this but uh i'm in no position to discredit it that that there was a meeting scheduled for that day anyway to make a final judgment on whether to, rec- re- whether to recuse on this issue at this point in time. 
He recused. Democrats struck back and said that's not a it's not a big enough recusal. He needs to come back to the Hill so we can grill him on any subject that we want to for as many hours as we want to. And, and, now, I, think, now, and I think that he wisely said, um, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a letter, which he did. Alan, let me let me jump in real quick because we got about another minute and a half on the segment. I just want to go to David Mortlock. Um, David, on, on the phone tap question, is there any logical reason that a FISA judge or a a circuit judge would allow in an election a phone tap of this magnitude to go forward into play? at that time during the election season? If it met the probable cause standard, sure, right? But I think, you know, it goes back to the very first issue we were talking about, which is, um, you know, uh, I think Alan made the point that it's possible there are some uh, FISA warrants somewhere in the system that don't rise to Jim Clapper. But I think we can all agree that surveillance of the Republican Party campaign and the Republican nominee for president would certainly have risen to Jim Clapper's attention. Let me go one step further. Is we know that there are foreign dignitaries that live and reside in Trump Tower on a regular basis. Is it possible that a FISA warrant could have listed Trump Tower as the location of said tap, but not necessarily tapping the Trump organization. Is that a possibility? I mean, anything that I could, there could be a FISA warrant on us right now. I mean, that's a possibility. Right, exactly. But, but that, let, let, let me add something. Justin yeah, did it. Yeah, let, me, Justin did it. Let, let me add something, if I could. Just the, 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 it would seem to me that the most likely uh, directive would be, let's suppose they discover that Michael Flynn has had some conversations, as we, as we now know. Um, and that he may have had a, he might have had some conversations back in in the early fall, let's say, and the 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 security community, uh, the intelligence community was very concerned with the content of some of these calls. They were concerned that there might have been some collusion. Um, how do you tap that? And so you have probable cause to tap probable cause to tap Flynn. How do you do that? You need to tap the phones that he uses, one of which uh, is at the Trump campaign or apparatus at Trump Tower. That's where they were. He would hang out there. He would work from there. He probably had a cell phone. He probably used the, the landlines that would go into Trump Tower. And so it's, con- it's not inconceivable that if you wanted to tap him because you could demonstrate probable cause, you would have to to tap the organization that he was working for and the landlines that were were connected to him. That would be the most, to me, the most logical pathway to make a case for tapping into Trump Tower. I can't see any other, but maybe, you know, we can't see everything. And I'm not saying it happened. I'm just saying that if you wanted to track him, you would have to track him wherever he went. Dan Lipner, let me go to David Morlock and then come to you. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I think there's an astonishing assumption in there, which is that a 
uh, a, a, the FISA court agreed that there was probable cause that Michael Flynn was acting as an agent of a foreign power, um, right? In which case, the scandal is not the wiretap. It, 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 it's that Michael it's Flynn is a double agent. Yeah, exactly, right? So, I mean, look, I, you know, I think that, I mean, look, I, I've certainly got theories and, and, and thoughts about the Trump campaign's relationship with Russia. Happy to go into those, but... Um, but I think uh, I think it's incredibly unlikely um, that uh, that that would have happened, and then Jim Clapper would have uh, gone on TV and lied about it uh, this week. Um, I look. I, I mean, I think I think we've all got. Yeah, yeah. Let me TV. let me make say let me say I don't think it happened. But Justin right. was trying to figure out why tap Trump Tower as though they're tra- they're tapping an entire uh, downtown office building in uh, in New York City. And I'm just pointing out one way that it could have occurred that they would want to tap into phones at the campaign in order to get Flynn or someone else who we haven't talked about. You know, right. there, there, there are other targets that they've talked about um, who, who had conversations. So that would be the reason. No, I'm not for a moment suggesting that's what occurred. I don't think it did occur like that. Dan Lipner, last word. Yeah, it's worth noting that this is part of the changes that occurred or could be, let me add that, in, that, that clarification. This could be part of the changes that occurred after September 11th. It used to be that wiretaps had to be phone specific. That is no longer the case. It is now person specific. So whether or not a Trump relationship was a target of a wiretap and had used a phone in Trump's tower and caught other things in process and brought other people into the investigation, that's a different question. It is entirely plausible that with the Paul Manafort issues that occurred way back early in the Trump campaign, that something else was at play. We don't know that, but the president's response to this has actually created more questions than answers. If he had simply said, we want to ensure that everything is handled cleanly and as clearly and open as possible, I encourage the government to investigate thoroughly, and we will make sure that we are hands-off and the investigation goes forward as we would hope any investigation would go. That is what he said. I want to let that be the last word because this conversation goes into our next segment. We're going to talk about uh, Attorney General Sessions the Russia problems that keep popping up. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Back from Politics, live from Washington, D.C. at TG Cigars, 1118 9th Street, Northwest. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. I saw you last night and got that old feeling. When you came inside, I got that old feeling. The moment that you danced by, I felt a thrill, 
politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. Tuesday. It is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining me as they do every Tuesday, Dan Lipner, Alan Moore, and special guest this week, uh, former uh, Director of International Economics for the Obama Administration. He is a man we know as David Mortlock, a partner at Wilkie Park. And uh, thanks again for joining us. They really Thank appreciate you. that. Let's switch a little bit, kind of tying together, but let's talk about the continuing problems with uh, the Trump campaign, the Trump White House, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the Russia question. Uh, the Russia question is, continues to be a thorn in the side of the administration. Uh, as late as this afternoon, uh, Senator Al Franken from Minnesota, Democrat, uh, member of the Judiciary Committee, was making the talking head circuit asking or almost demanding that Attorney General Jeff Sessions come back and reappear before the committee to explain his answers to mainly Senator Franken's questions. There's a lot of back and forth on this. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of discontent going on internally in the Senate regarding this. But Alan Moore, let me start with you. Um, you brought up the question that Al Franken had asked. And the impression I got was uh, Franken had asked if he had any contact with the ambassador from the uh, Russian Federation uh, during his time as a surrogate for the Trump campaign. The, the kind of paraphrasing is the attorney general responded by saying, no, 
I've been I've been noted as a surrogate for the campaign, but I did not meet with the ambassador or anybody from the Russian embassy as a surrogate. I may have done so as a senator. Ambassadors all the time. Is 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 there logic in that argument? Well, first of all. With all respect, you completely and totally mischaracterized the Al Franken question. How's he that? did not. He <laughs> first of all, he did not ask Sessions if Sessions had had a meeting or a conversation. That was not his question. He he. You're breaking up a little bit on me here, but he he was reading a CNN report that had just come across. His desk, which sessions, which had been brought to his attention, sessions had not even seen the report, and the report said that uh, that according to CNN sources, that there were conversations that had occurred, m- multiple conversations by senior people in the Trump campaign uh, with senior intelligence officials of the Russian government to talk about the campaign. And his question was, if that's the case, what would you do about it? He didn't ask about sessions at all. He didn't, he did. And and sessions basically said, and he was kind of joking about it. I've watched it many times. I'm sure you guys uh, have seen it too, where he said, well, some people have said I was a sir. I was a surrogate. And I certainly never had any conversations like that. And with regard to the question, I don't, Alan, I don't you, you know what I would do. Right, right until that last bit. Hold on. I got a bunch of weird background noise. So. No, 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 go ahead, Alan. Alan? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Finish your thought. So, no, I was, I mean, I was basically done that, Franken did not ask Sessions about conversations that he Sessions had had. He simply said, if you are attorney general, what would you, what would you do in the case that if, if, if that is the case that surrogates or senior members of the campaign had conversations about the campaign with members of Russian intelligence. And he said, in effect, I sure didn't have any of those, but with regard to anybody else, I don't know what I would do now. He he offered up that I sure never had any conversations like that, giving the impression that he had never had a conversation with any Russian about anything. And in and as he explained today to the committee, um, that's that's not what he was speaking to. He was speaking to the whole suggestion that underlie that underlay the the Franken question of of senior people having political conversations with Russian intelligence. And he said, I didn't have any of those and I don't know what I would do. So now, now we know that he has decided simply because of the cloud over all of this stuff, because he was part of the campaign and there were apparently some conversations of some sort um, that, that, uh, that may or may not have been about the campaign. Um, that he would simply recuse himself from any investigation looking into that stuff. He he was in a he was caught in a in a bind and felt a need to recuse. Um, there was no reason for and initially Franken said Franken was I watched him decline to accuse uh, 
uh, sessions of lying. He said he's got some explaining to do. He needs to answer some questions. And the, I don't know if he later said he needs to come back to the committee. That's not where, where, where he, Franken, started because I watched him on a couple of talk shows say he needs to answer some more questions. There were others who started saying he needs to come back up here. The, un, the unspoken reason being we want to hear about this and anything else we feel like beating him up over. Yeah, so, so Alan, I, I think it's absolutely fair to be specific about Franken's question, and I completely agree with your characterization of it. Um, but we've also got to be specific about what Sessions' response was. Uh, and Sessions did say, and I'm re- literally reading right here, I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have, did not have communications with the Russians, and I'm unable to comment on it. So he, Sessions offered up that he had not had communications with the Russians without qualifying it. Now, it is entirely possible he misspoke. That is entirely possible. And, you know, frankly, if we were talking about the French, that would be one thing. Um, but it's, it's a pattern of denial and obfuscation about uh, the, the Trump campaigns and Trump White House's communications with the Russians layered on top of a truly bizarre commentary and, and a policy approach that the president and the White House have towards Russia. And, you know, look, it, there was another secretary last year who went before uh, Congress for about 11 hours, I believe. And, you know, if Hillary Clinton had lacked that level of specificity, I'm sure we'd be having numerous more hearings about it. And I think, you know, what, what made the situation more bizarre was Sessions did not come out and say, I misspoke, you know, I misunderstood the question. He took a page from his new boss and he denied, denied, denied and said, I don't know what this is about. It's completely false. You know, it, it, it's, um, they're just creating you, you are, excuse me, excuse me, David, but you are now, I believe, mischaracterizing what happened after uh, uh, this all came out. What the, the, the sequence was, he, they, they had the exchange. A few days later, there, were, there was a written interrogatory from, from ranking Democrat Patrick Leahy, uh, written questions to follow up after the hearing, and, it, and the question was very specific. Did you... Jeff Sessions, Senator Sessions, ever have a conversation with any Russians about the campaign? Answer, no. It fit the same narrative that one could logically assume Franken was talking about, even though he was simply reading the, the CNN uh, uh, report as it came across. It did not strike sessions at, at the, the, the next day or, or after he wrote the written responses that there was any problem with what he had said. The, the meeting he had was not a secret meeting. It was, it was unfortunate, given the backdrop that you accurately describe of the, of the totally bizarre uh, narrative of, of now President Trump's connections to the Russians the linkages with some of these other people. 
um, it's not surprising that the Russians would want to would want to meet Jeff Sessions or any other senator who they perceive to be close to Trump, which Sessions was the only one for a long time. I just think that 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 his to some extent he was a victim of the circumstance that that, that we're describing of this this odd connection, this curious, troubling defense of the Russians, the compliments of of uh, of the authoritarian thug Putin, but but it, you know we're we're talking now about about Jeff Sessions and uh, an imprecise question and an imprecise answer, which on its face was wrong, and he has acknowledged that he could have been more precise, and he's tried to clear that up. Let me go to Dan Dan Littner. There's the Republicans are coming out saying, look. The attorney general has been confirmed. Let him do his job. And the Republicans are now coming out and saying, look, this is just petty inside the beltway politics being done by the Democrats, particularly Senator Franken on judiciary. How do the Democrats not look petty in this, on this issue with Senator Sessions, who's already done what many on both sides say were the right move by refusing himself on the Russian question? Well, a couple of different things. So first, I don't think it's petty in the least. I do think Senator Sessions, excuse me, Attorney General Sessions, formerly Attorney General Sessions, did the right thing by recusing himself and did the correct thing politically. And I'd like to reemphasize my point on the difference between the people who have been involved with politics professionally in the Trump administration and the people who are seemingly involved with amateur hour, this is their first time dealing with politics inside the game as opposed to sniping at the, at the edges, and those who really do this for a living. It is a job. It is a profession. It does involve some real skill. The idea that the Russians might have some influence over the president of the United States or people in the president's inner circle is not an inconsequential thing. If we were further back in the age of the Cold War, people would be losing their minds right now. All of us on the show right now are old enough to remember the Cold War, unlike some folks who might be listening who are unaware that the Russians were deemed, formerly deemed a legitimate threat to the United States. And all of Western developed, the Western developed world. So the idea that what the the Attorney General has done doesn't matter isn't true. I think he's handled himself correctly, even though he's a little slow on the recusal front. The White House, how they've chosen to handle this is even more baffling and raises more questions. I mean, I actually agree with Alan that the characterization of how, how Attorney General Sessions handled it in the clarification, I think he handled it properly-ish. But going forward, the White House needs to come up with a better strategy. Next time Russia comes up, if the president and Sean Spicer and everyone in the mechanism of the president's inner circle lose their minds as they have thus far, it's going to continue to raise more questions. Put it to bed or, or let the investigations run. 
but they're doing neither. They are simply adding more gasoline to the fire because they refuse to just either determine what this is or allow sunlight to disinfect whatever the whatever the causes are that are encouraging this line of questioning. David Warlock, is is Jeff Sessions a threat to the Trump administration? <laughs> uh, is he a threat to the Trump administration? I mean, is, is this is this a real issue that the Trump administration has to be concerned about, or is this political backlash? Well, look, I mean, I think Jeff Sessions and the conversation around Jeff Sessions is a symptom of a much more troubling approach to Russia and relationship with Russia had by this administration. Uh, and Jeff Sessions is obviously part of that administration. He, um, Al Franken would not have asked him the question in the first place. Pat Leahy would not have sent him that written question after the fact um, if this wasn't a matter of real concern uh, about the, the administration's approach toward Russia. Uh, and question to you. Is Jeff Sessions uh, detrimental to the Trump administration as it stands? Was that for me? You, you yeah. broke up there a minute. Yeah, no, that was he's, he, he's, he, he, he is, he's not the, he's not the problem. He was, uh, you know, for him, it was a little bit of wrong place, wrong time. Let me say this though, that, that as long as this issue continues to live on, and the president and the White House feed it. That's the that's the real problem. Uh, the the president the president's uh, Saturday tweets about what President Obama did and didn't do. That was all about the Russian connection. What what the Russians have clearly been wanting to do in our system and in other democracies in the West is undercut. Uh, international confidence in democracy as a form of government. They they seem to have decided after well after they had hacked the DNC and John Podesta that they would like to help Trump win. Now, as we said many months ago, be careful what you wish for, Russians, because who knows what you're going to get here. But let's just but. But they started out, and they tried to tap, uh, hack the, the, the RNC, but failed. So they want disruption in the West. They want disruption in America. The longer the president acts in ways that lets this live on, he plays into the hands of one of the clear objectives of the Russians which is to make us look like we don't know what we're doing, we're in disarray, there's accusation and finger-pointing all around. That's, you know, and, and I'm not saying there, may, there couldn't, that, that, that there's no chance that something even more nefarious is afoot here. Um, that's a different question, um, but, but the, the, the odd thing is the stonewalling out of the White House is helping the White House is helping the Russians get what they want. David Morlock, let me go to you on this question. Is, is this playing into Vladimir Putin's playbook? I mean, is 
Putin getting what he wants out of this? Uh, so, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with, with uh, Alan Moy. I mean, this is, you know, Putin's goal, uh, which he'd certainly run this playbook many, many times uh, in Eastern Europe. It's certainly what he tried to do in Ukraine through other means is to uh, sow confusion and undermine the institutions of democracy public confidence in their governments. And that's exactly what he's done in the United States. What is uh, the most upsetting of all of that is he is now getting a massive assist in that effort from the President of the United States. Dan Littner, you agree? Yeah, and on top of that, it's worth noting that, at least as far as reporting goes, the Russians have been trying to influence the whatever party is representing a nationalist front, which is almost by definition a retraction from the international world order around the Western world. This has been true in France, it's been true in Germany, and it's absolutely true here. So... If that is the goal, that if there's a retreat from internationalism amongst world powers to, in, to insulate themselves from everyone else, especially allies, that only strengthens a, a Russian agenda for doing whatever it is that they choose that is in Russia's interest. I don't slight them for doing what is in Russia's interest. The United States has done what is in the, the U.S.'s interest, which is previously has always been what has been in the, in the interest of democracy and liberalism, small l, globally, that democracy is a good thing, global trade is a good thing, but the Russians seem to have been influencing these things globally, and it's in their interest that these international institutions fracture, and Putin and his cronies seem to be doing that well. Alan Moore, Alan Moore, let me go to you. Is the more America-centric, almost isolationist or nationalist approach of the Trump campaign and the Trump administration, is, is that hurting us more than we had anticipated? Well, <laughs> it, it, it is definitely, in my uh, humble opinion, not helping us. Um, and and I think we we didn't really know where this was all heading. Um, it's not moving in this direction in a nice, clean, clear path because with uh, with weekly Saturday morning t- uh, tweets uh, and other uh, poor, poorly handled policy rollouts, we ha- we see plenty of disarray and dis- disruption. Anyhow, um, this one is really important. This uh, role of the Russians. America's role in the world, um, and uh, and uh, whatever we think about the, the the daily messes, this is a bigger, uh, more ominous trend that that uh, that all uh, Democrats and Republicans should be concerned about. David Morlock, I want to ask you the final question on this issue. <clears throat> when we talk about the internalizing the nationalistic approach, the isolationist approach that the Trump administration currently seems to be on track for. It would seem to me that with the, the Russian economy in the trash barrel, with the Russian currency not on the forefront of 
international currency trading on top of the fact that you have a very uh, hard-handed president in Vladimir Putin with a high percentage of approval inside the borders of Russia. Does this help the Russian economy, all this convolution that we're seeing with Russia and the interaction with the Trump campaign and the Trump administration? Does this make Russia more economically viable? No, I think it does exactly what Putin wants it to do, which is to strengthen Russia's political head and consolidate his power inside of Russia. Uh, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't Vladimir Putin try and hedge his bets and make the economy stronger, which would ultimately give him as much power as he would want in Moscow? Well, it's a great question. Why, why is Donald Trump um, following an isolationist agenda that's only going to hurt the American economy in the long run? It's because uh, he's pursuing a short-term goal of consolidating his own power and own position at the cost of his people. Uh, and that's what Putin has done for many years. Uh, it's what he continues to do. And I'm terrified that that seems to be the same playbook that Trump is. So what I'm hearing is we can almost... Actually, I, need to, I, need to, I need to disagree with that point. Go ahead, in Dan. Order for, in order for that to be true, you need a free and democratic small d press. And that is not true in Russia. The supermajority of any information outlets are state controlled. Not to say that it's exclusive in Russia, but as I understand it, a free press is far from the norm in in what what is any of the former Soviet Union, but particularly Russia. I mean, David, please feel free to correct me on that. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Dan. I mean, that, that is the big distinction between Russia and other countries that have, that have gone down this path and the United States is the strength of our institutions. That includes a free press. It includes uh, professional, uh, dedicated civil servants. Uh, it, checks and balances. Checks and balances, a strong judiciary, abs- independent judiciary, absolutely. And that is what makes us different from Russia. Um, I'm not saying we're going to be as bad off as Russia, but I can certainly see us inching that way as the president seeks to undermine those institutions to reduce their credibility. Alan Moore, you agree? Well, there's two, two, two things. There's the question of our institutions and respect for them. Well, basic understanding of them, which and, and hopefully then respect. Um, uh, I'm not seeing the basic understanding, which means not enough respect, which is problematic. I want to, if I heard David Wright, though, I want to, I want to make sure that I did. And before I jump down his throat, um, <laughs> when I got the sense that he was suggesting that Donald Trump is pursuing a, an, a, an agenda of, uh, of world isolationism to help the U.S. economy in the short term to uh, its detriment in the long term. Is that, what, uh, is that what you were saying? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of different parts there, but I think, you know, just, just to take one small part of it, um, I do think the isolationist approach, um, the America first approach, um, is uh, likely to produce a short-term boost on the economy and most importantly, on Trump's popularity uh, to great cost in the long run. So 
you're suggesting that the three trillion dollar approximate increase in the in the in the value of the stock market is a result of a bunch of uh, investors who are absolute and complete idiots who are buying into this this toxic brew. Uh, economic brew of 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 a president that they're all short sighted too, but they're smart enough that they'll get out when the time comes. I Alan, mean, I that's gonna that's, that, 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 that's gonna affect what you're saying. I mean, he's he there has never been a president who doesn't put America first. The question is, what does that mean? And it and what does that mean in terms of international engagement? What does that mean in terms of investment in uh, in defense, uh, in economic regulation, in fiscal, federal fiscal policy? There are legitimate differences here, and people have uh, have opinions, strongly so, as to what's best for the long-term interest of the country. And I just think. I'm just not willing to let let those comments. Uh, uh, and I work in the world of, of of international trade at a very high level, and I'm a big believer. And I don't like his international trade policy. I don't think that works out to our best long-term interest. But I but I just think that you need some some pushback on the suggestion that he's copycatting uh, uh, in some ways uh, what Vladimir Putin does in Russia. Well, look, I, I don't think we're that far apart on this, honestly, Alan. I, I, I don't think that people in the stock market are idiots. I think they are, um, they are investing uh, on the uh, potential for deregulation and a boom to business. And I think, yes, you're, you're likely to see that with a rollback of the Wall Street protections, with a rollback of Dodd-Frank, um, you know, these fairly traditional, with, with a tax break, these fairly traditional Republican ideas, um, but I'm I'm guessing when you were, you know, running the show, the Republican Party was not pulling back from international trade deals, was not talking about imposing, well, at times imposing tariffs, but not not at the breadth um, that Donald Trump is. And to give one central example, I think TPP. Um, you know, pulling back on that has the exact opposite effect of what Trump said it does, which is essentially we're handing the reins to China to uh, to write the rules of the road um, for international trade in Asia and beyond. Um, and I think that's where really we're, we're harming ourselves in the short term. Uh, I think that the Russia question and is, is sort of related but different, which is, you know, you can see you can see Trump trying to borrow some of the ideas um, from Putin and other leaders who have sought to discredit uh, any institution that might um, cast doubt on his own power and credibility. Which he certainly does, which is a whole, you know, different, it speaks more to his personality. With one word on, on the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, of which I was, which, of which I was a public supporter, along with every other, I think, under, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, um, but nobody cared. Um, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, TPP died well before 
President Trump was elected. The fact that he wrote the in, in an executive order that we were withdrawing was basically a moot point. It was an irrelevancy. What he has said is, this is not my favorite approach, but it's the only approach left, is to do country-by-country country conversations with those very same countries. We can go pick up on the content of the old TPP. I was sorry to see it die, but Donald Trump didn't kill it. Hillary Clinton ran from it um, uh, while she was a candidate. It, it, was, it was dead, dead, dead prior to the election. Well, let's, we've blown through the top of the hour break, so we'll just keep on rolling because this is going to transition to a discussion on the travel ban that was implemented and announced uh, kind of oddly <clears throat> over, over the uh, past uh, four days. Uh, the travel ban or travel restrictions 2.0 version was rolled out not by the president, but by a triumvirate, which included the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, General James Kelly, and oddly enough, the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, announced the new travel ban or travel restrictions from now six Muslim countries, them taking Iraq off the list. Uh, Dan Lipner, does it make sense? What is the justification for taking Iraq off the list? Well, the taking Iraq off the list um, is pretty straightforward, though amazing that it took this long for it to happen. We have ongoing military operations with the legitimate government and military of Iraq to try and destroy ISIS. In addition to that, we have people that have served alongside the United States military, the the Army and the Marines as translators that were caught up in the previous travel ban that the people who served as translators were actually, while working for us, were at risk for their lives because they served with the United States and served on behalf of the United States military. The retraction of any of our previous promises and the statements by the United States and the United States military that we had your back only puts the U.S. military more in danger for any future operations in Iraq to, to disgorge ISIS from whatever territory they might be holding at the moment. And the insanity of and the short-sightedness of the previous ban was was just intolerable, and I think that includes all the way up to Secretary Mattis, formerly General Mattis, um, and his positions as far as what was required to do any operations in Iraq. So the the new order, which in my legal opinion different from my political opinion. In my legal opinion, seems to be sustainable. It excludes visa holders. It excludes green card holders from the new travel ban. Politically, I still think this is horrible. But legally, I think this one actually holds water. Alan Moore, uh, big, other big changes in the 2.0 version of travel restrictions. 
As Dan pointed out, it was the allowance of current visa holders, current resident aliens with green cards uh, were allowed to travel in and out freely. Uh, it does take away the indefinite 120 days. It, 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 any other major changes that you see in the 2.0 version of the travel restrictions? Yeah, one what, what, one other change, which which uh, fed the the uh, the legal challenges, was the fact that uh, the earlier version had a, a a specific preference for Christian refugees from Syria. That was eliminated in this particular case. One of the complaints uh, in the earlier version was that this this uh, the original order considered religion in unconstitutional ways. Dan is absolutely right about why Iraq was removed. It, it was it was both the Defense Department and the State Department that said this harms our interests and our ability to work with the Iraqis uh, going forward. Um, so th- they 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 cleaned they cleaned it up. You know, it's it's not a hundred and eighty degree difference from before. It's consistent with what Trump said in his campaign. It's consistent uh, with the contact, uh, co- uh, content of the earlier version. It's just that it's narrower, narrower, uh, more narrowly drawn, um, fewer people covered, no permanent ban on Syrian refugees, as was, uh, or indefinite ban, if you will, uh, which was part of the original. These are important changes that get to trying to make it legal. And, and what's also important here is the fact that they went about this process on an interagency way. They got everybody involved. They talked to the Hill about it. They put together a document that, as, as Dan says, will probably uh, withstand legal scrutiny. Remember, it's mostly a 90-day temporary ban. It's not indefinite. It's not open-ended. It's certainly not permanent. Um, and... Uh, and so, and the the so-called element of surprise was was also taken away. That was a claim, or the first go-around, that uh, gee, we need to do this immediately and overnight because uh, if we give any warning, then people will rush in. Well, that was absurd on its face because um, you can't get a visa overnight. Now, at the at the first time, first go-around, it sounded like. Even if you were a visa holder from some one of these countries and happened to be out of the country, you wouldn't be able to get back in. That was part of the grotesque, immediate disruption that was caused the first time around. So my guess is this one, this one uh, uh, it, it won't, won't be stopped, although we'll see. And if it is, it'll, my guess is it will, it will be upheld. I don't like the policy. I don't think the policy was necessary, but at least this time it looks like they did it in a considered, thoughtful way. They should have done it this way the first time if they were going to do it. Maybe they learned something. We'll see. David Mortlock, somebody who worked on the national security side with the Obama administration and familiar with it, the big push by the Trump administration for the travel restrictions was the question of we cannot properly vet those coming into the country. There's been question about the vetting process 
going back to the Obama administration, is that a logical argument for the travel restrictions? Can we not, in fact, vet those properly coming into the country? Whew. Okay, well, where, where to start here? Um, I mean, to, to answer your question directly is uh, the questions about the vetting process um, are a total canard because, uh, you know, if we actually describe the refugee vetting process, which, um, you know, is easily available on the Internet, um, it would take up the rest of the show because it is an incredibly intense vetting process that involves uh, numerous international organizations before what country they are going to. And only at that point, if they are lucky enough to pull the United States out of the hat. They could go to Sweden. They could end up in Sweden. So, you know, honestly, um, it's a pretty dumb terrorist if this is the way uh, that they're trying to end up in the United States. Um, And then even once you pull the United States out of the hat, uh, numerous U.S. agencies are involved in vetting every single individual. So, you know, in my opinion, it's a total canard. I mean, look, I... Going back to what Dan and Alan said, I, I agree. You know, reading the second executive order, there's a level of competence and professionalism that uh, obviously was absent from the first. And I believe in Alan's word, resulting in these grotesque results of families being separated, people on planes on the way here, just mass chaos. Um, but at the same time, it, it's lipstick on a pig, right? I mean, this, this policy is un-American. Uh, it is uh, anathema to uh, our place in the world, and frankly, it is dangerous. But the, but the Trump camp has said from the beginning that this was, a, this was a policy. These seven, now six countries, were originally on the radar for the Obama administration. Why is that not carry over to the Trump administration? Why doesn't that justify what Trump's doing? Well, I, I mean... But the policy was completely different. They were, quote, on the radar, right? Yes, they were subject to, uh, uh, to scrutiny um, of uh, people getting visas, of immigrants, um, of refugees coming from this country. But that's different than stopping them getting in altogether. But the Republicans have been saying all along, or oppon- I'm sorry, opponents of the travel restrictions all along saying, look, if you want to do this, you're not including the countries where the 9-11 terrorists were from, i.e. Saudi Arabia, i.e. even the Emirates, i.e. Qatar, other areas in the region, Egypt, for example, why not include them but keep these six now? Right, exactly. I mean, and that's that's the thing. If you read through through the new executive order, at least they're making an effort to explain the national security justification for this. But if you read those justifications, it reveals how flimsy the justification is for either executive order. Because the examples they cite uh, involve terrorist attacks that didn't actually happen. There's this claim about 300 refugees uh, being under investigation for ties to terrorism. No idea. There's no indication where that comes from or, or what the investigation is, what they're under investigation for. Um, and, you know, the removal of Iraq from the list and the, and the way this was rolled out uh, with the delay, with the fact it was pushed back from, from announcement last week, uh, demonstrates that, you know, the, 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 the impetus, the need to have this in place immediately clearly wasn't there. 
But Dan Lipner, today the administration let it out that there may be an additional up to 14 or 15 additional countries that might be included in this travel restriction. Does, is that a smart move for the Trump administration at a time when we still have to deal with a large global economic tie with our country? I'm going to take any bet that anyone wants to offer that 99.9% of those countries are going to be majority Muslim. Um, this is what happens when faux populism is turned into political policy. And the, the Trumpists are going to ride this all the way to shore regardless of whether or not there is substance behind it. I am, no, there's nothing that suggests this is a good idea. And even for the refugee issues, the, the vetting process was in excess of a year, close to two, to make sure that the refugees were indeed who the refugees said they were and made the United States seem like that which we, we are the shining city on the hill for those who are seeking refuge from people who would torment them and punish them for being who they are. The Trump administration is simply trying to gain politically on those who are the most ignorant of those who are fleeing So, yeah, let me, let me say something here before Dan gets carried away condemning the the administration for something that they have not done and aren't necessarily even considering doing. Um, there's been such an effort by many Democrats to call this, this uh, proposal a Muslim ban, which is absurd on its face. Um, uh, but, but the, let's say this about the six, the six countries that are involved. The reason that that they're involved is is two. One, they are hotbeds of of terrorism and um, and potential incubators of people who would do harm to the United States. Two, they have non-functioning governments except Iran. Iran's the the, the only one the the only exception here, um, but. They have non-functioning governments when it comes to, uh, time to try to figure out who people are who are trying to get visas and or uh, to have refugee status. So the, when you say, why not Saudi Arabia and uh, when, when we've got uh, Yemen in there? Well, in Saudi Arabia, when somebody – first of all, we don't take refugees from Saudi Arabia. There aren't any that I'm aware of. Um, but when people want to get visas from from uh, Saudi Arabia, they we have the ability to check people out and decide um, whether we should give them a visa or not, whether it's a student visa, business visa, tourist visa, um, and we take our we 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 take our chances that that we know who these people are because they have a government that has institutions and mechanisms that will allow us to, to check them out. My hunch about this particular uh, executive order, given its history, given the disastrous original rollout, given the, the at best, at best minimal benefit that might occur, and I'm not acknowledging that there's any benefit because 
I, I don't think there's any significant difference. I I don't trash it like like David does. I just don't think it does very much because we have a system in place that is remarkably effective. The biggest piece of the the the, the, the biggest thing here, though, which has not been mentioned, and you didn't need it didn't need to be in this executive order, was the the numerical target for how many refugees the the U.S. will allow in the next calendar year. We had been taking in 50 to 60,000 refugees from all over the world um, up until, and I think it was about 80,000 in 2015, and President Obama took the number up to over 100,000 last year. That was a disappointment to some in the refugee community, given the, the massive backlog of folks who were stuck waiting for someplace to go. Um, but it was a, an improvement from from where it had been. This executive order takes the ceiling, the cap on numbers that would be allowed, back down to 50,000, which is below the historic average of recent years. For those of us who care about refugees, who believe in refugees, who believe that they represent not only who we are and our history, but who also are a unique asset in terms of, of being able to, uh, to, to feel good about ourselves and at the same time attract some enormously, wonderfully talented people from, uh, from different parts of the world. That was a big disappointment. David Warlock. Yeah, let me. I think, look, I think the most dangerous thing about this order is what's not on the face of it, which is the impact it's going to have on our relationship with that region of the world, the governments of that region of the world, and the people of that region of the world. The greatest intelligence uh, assets we have in countries that are hotbeds for terrorism are the people of those countries. Uh, and whether they're in line to get a visa or not, the United States just told them that they are not welcome here. Uh, that is going to directly harm our ability to build relationships uh, with those governments, with the citizens of those countries. Um, and I think, I think in the long run, it validates this of the world, which is this is a... Uh, you know, this is a battle between the West and Islam, which is exactly the narrative that ISIS wants to build. And I'll, I'll just add one more point, which is you're right that the, um, the, this executive order does not ban Muslims from the United States. But that is the policy the president still stated on his campaign website. They have not removed that. Uh, and so I'm going to take him at his word that that is his policy and that is Extremely dangerous for those reasons. So I, yeah, I'm going to let that be the last word on that. This is no, 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 no. You can't, you can't leave that there. You can't. That I don't know what's on his website. Whatever it is, it's irrelevant because it's no longer a campaign. When you tell me it's on the White House website, I'll believe it. He no, said no, a stupid relevant. thing. He States said a stupid thing. Down. He said a stupid oh, thing Alan in his Moore campaign when he's. Alan Moore. When he, when, when he said, let's ban all Muslims, and then he backed off of that and talked about extreme vetting, 
which was in many of our minds not necessary, but a whole lot different than saying they can't come in. When you say that this sends a signal that to that part of the world, you're not welcome here. I, it's certainly not the welcome mat, but it's a 90-day suspension while we review our processes to make sure that they do the job. Now, one of the things, of course, that feeds the other side is the people who say it's a Muslim ban, the people who say this simply means you're not welcome here, rather than looking at it at face value as to what it is. It's a 90-day suspension of the rules until we can figure out whether we're doing everything we can to protect America. I don't think it's necessary. I don't like it. But I'm not prepared to participate in what I consider to be exaggerated condemnation of something that is as narrow as it is and as temporary as it is. I don't like the new numbers. That's a bigger issue. But that's not aimed simply at Muslims. That's aimed at refugees, period. Dan Littner, last word. Yeah, no, so going back to and stealing the rhetoric of Ronald Reagan, the shining city on the hill, this is an idea, and an idea is hard to quantify. And the idea that the president of the United States, and I'm actually trying to pull up his campaign website right now to see if I can confirm David's point, but I will only take it uh, if I don't have time to pull it up right now, that what he's saying is correct. If the president of the United States website for his campaign still says a Muslim ban, that doesn't go away. This is an idea. And that we are the democratic ideal, the pluralistic ideal for the rest of the country, that matters. And I, I agree with Alan that, that these ideas and that the, the process in which the president is going through, the, making sure that it's thorough, absolutely. But there's been, there seems to be a lack of understanding what the process was prior. The fact that for Syrian refugees, it took in excess of a year for people to come to the United States, and these are people fleeing the combat and the civil war that is in Syria, and suggests that the men and women in the United States government could not make sure that these folks were indeed the people who, who they said they were fleeing. The war in Syria is insane, and not to mention also diminishes the idea of our government being able to do the vetting that they said they can do, and also being the, the safe haven from the tyranny that we proclaim to be. It's a tragedy that the President of the United States has us hiding behind walls that we cannot possibly stop the things that we think we can't. It's not as bad as the president says, and we simply are not Europe. We are not dealing with the people washing up on, on, on our shores in the Mediterranean. There are thousands of miles between us and the wars that are going on in the Mideast and what is going on in Europe. It's a different beast, and the president is not making us any better in the world and certainly is not making us any safer here at home. Well, well, I'm going to let that be the last word because, again, we've blown through the bottom of the hour break. Uh, we're going to pivot right into the breaking news coming out of Washington today. 
that breaking news is the GOP, the Republicans on the Hill, have introduced a bill that would, in fact, replace what we know as Obamacare. The American Health Care Act was introduced today in the House, and it has gotten some lukewarm reception from many in the right. So the question now becomes is, uh, what do we do from here? Uh, Alan Moore, let me start with you. Big changes between the American Health Care Act and what we know as Obamacare. Yes. Oh, you're asking what they are? Yeah. So the the uh, uh, the 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 proposed alternative, the replace part of repeal and replace, um, is uh, is still lacking in a few details, and it's lacking in. Um, it, not least of all is how much this thing would cost and and how it would be paid for what what the repeal does is it basically says get rid of the individual mandate which was very controversial not particularly popular and curiously um not particularly effective because so many young healthy people simply decided to pay the fine which maxed out uh, here to four at about $1,500 and decided they would rather do that and take their chances in being healthy rather than spend thousands of dollars for health insurance that they didn't think that they needed. Um, got rid of the, that, that mandate. It got rid of the, 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 the employer mandate. Um, and, uh, but, but recognizing that there were many things in, uh, in the Affordable Care Act that, that uh, people cared about, wanted, that many Republicans wanted also to provide um, uh, to was guaranteed access to insurance for uh, people with pre-existing conditions, um, and uh, and and this uh, this curious uh, uh, but very popular provision that gee, kids can stay on their parents' plans up to uh, up to the age of 26. Um, and, uh, and everybody thought that was just a fabulous idea, even, even though it created a false sense of, of, uh, of reality to young people who go into the workforce. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, it does some good things. Don't get me wrong, but it's a very mixed blessing That's, that those two would be preserved. The subsidies for individuals who need insurance would no longer be grants, but they would be ref- refundable tax credits. Um, and so that would mean that you would get your, uh, your benefit based on age and, uh, and income uh, over the course of your uh, tax paying year um, uh, rather than in, in terms of a direct subsidy for insurance. Um, Alan Moore, the, about Alan, ha- Alan, let me just jump in real quick. Right yeah. now, as it stands, the American Healthcare Act has gotten some pushback by some key Republicans, particularly in the Senate. Uh, Notably, if you look at it, you have Senator Capito from West Virginia. You have uh, Senator uh, uh, Murkowski out of of Alaska. Uh, Senator Lee, I believe, has said as of late this afternoon that that the Republicans are trying to shove down the American Health Care Act in a same vein 
that the Obama administration did that exact same thing. Is there legitimacy in their claim that this is being just thrown against the wall, hoping it sticks? Well, so so the 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 big the big difference between then and now is that uh, that President Obama and the Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate, and they chose to uh, to simply give up on involving Republicans, uh, uh, a decision that I have been enormously critical of ever since, um, because there were a group of Republicans uh, who they, they were working with for a while. Um, you need 60 votes to do everything they're talking about uh, in the Senate, and they don't have 60 votes. So they can't ram something down the throats of the the, the country or the Democrats uh, the way the uh, the way the Democrats did. It's simply not possible. Having said that, there are plenty of Republicans who are not on board with this either. You've got the Rand Pauls of the world in the Senate who say this is Obamacare light. That's not what we want. That's not what we need. I will op- oppose it. Then you've got a whole nother cluster of Republicans who say we don't want to phase out the expansion of Medicaid because that has provided health insurance for the first time to a very large group of poor people and uh, particularly uh, individuals and childless couples uh, who are poor. Um, And they don't like the phase out of Medicaid expansion. That's also in this bill. So, You've got problems among Republicans, first of all, uh, those who think it does, it's too generous, it's Obamacare light, and those who are worried that it cuts back too much on some things they care about. And you've got Democrats who so far, not a single solitary one, has said, let's work with you to try to fix our health care system. So, so this is a long slog. So David Warnock, there's not going to be anything, not going to be anything crammed down uh, uh, the, the country's throats when it comes to uh, health care reform. So, David Wartlock, let me go to you. When we look at Obamacare as it was presented in the in that tree killing 10,000 page bill that they introduced, uh, the reality as it stands today is uh, there are less options in various areas, particularly in places like Kentucky. Uh, deductibles and out-of-pocket costs, particularly in places like Arizona, have skyrocketed. It is now less affordable by some arguments than it would have been in the, without the Affordable Care Act. How do the Democrats justify keeping Obamacare whole as it stands with all the facts that are coming out today about it that say this doesn't make sense both economically or from a healthcare access point for Americans. So let me start by saying, Justin, I am thrilled that we're talking about this um, because it is great to actually have our government involved in a substantive conversation about policy. Um, And I think, you know, kudos to uh, House Republicans for actually putting a plan on the table that we can all see and take a look at. Now, as, as Alan said, there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions, including how much it will cost. I mean, uh, the CBO has not scored this right. at all yet. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, we need that. We, we, need, a, we need a fulsome debate. 
but it's a much easier to have that with an alternative plan on the table than simply just trashing Obamacare and saying we need something better. But, but Obamacare, although there are positive natures to it, the pre-existing conditions clause, the adult children clause, um, there are some positives to it, but large and whole, it's fallen on its own sword. So I, I wouldn't – look, I, I disagree with that, right? I mean, there are, there's no question that Obamacare needs fixes. And I think you'd have found a lot of Democrats willing to – uh, do that, including the president uh, in the last administration. Um, but, you know, that was bad politics for the Republicans to, uh, to make those fixes and, and try and improve Obamacare. Um, I, think, I think, look, at, at, at this point, um, we've seen 18, more, 18 million more people get health insurance. Uh, we've seen things like pre-existing conditions, uh, uh, you know, have to be covered by, by insurance companies. We've seen premiums, yes, premiums are rising, but overall they're rising at a, a much slower rate. You can't tell that from people in Arizona. Arizona. No, look, I mean, on the whole, they're rising at a much slower rate than they were before Obamacare. And so, you know, in the words of the president, healthcare is complicated. Yeah, but, but, but the reality is, though, when yeah, Arizona matters. Arizona, if you're going to talk about Arizona, you need to make sure you understand who the population of Arizona is. The working population of Arizona is relatively small. You have young people and you have lots of really old people. And that was one of the failures of Obamacare. The penalty, as me and Alan have gotten into on the show in the past, the penalty being as small as it was compared to the actual cost of coverage. People were willing to pay the penalty as opposed to the coverage and not ensuring people would get into the insurance market, which was part of the gamble that Obamacare made. But Dan, Dan, the problem was that, and this is according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, that the two things the Obamacare failed on, one of which was the getting young people, young, healthy people to opt in to the insurance market. And this is something that Republicans have talked about way back when you go back to Bob Dole's response to, Clinton, to the Clinton health care plan and what was the Heritage Foundation's plan that you needed to ensure people get into the market. And the other item, which nobody predicted, was that America is much sicker than anyone quite expected. So once people got access to the health care system, you had sicker people costing health insurance companies much more than anyone expected. That's part of the reason for the increase in health care. Health insurance costs, not health care costs, health insurance costs. Dan, when you you talk about this and you look at the individuals that have bought into the exchanges, you look at, let's even take like the silver plan here in the D.C. exchange, where you're talking about a $2,500 deductible just to get in the door and then a $5,000 out-of-pocket cost to a, a policyholder, which you're right there at $7,500. That's a deductible. Out of, what? That's a deductible. The out-of-pocket cost is the deductible. No, no, so no, you're no, saying the premiums. The, the Pre- premiums, $5,000, deductible, $2,500, I think. I think that's well, what you were saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is – you're still talking about $7,500 out of pocket. How does that become affordable to a family of four, an independent construction owner, 
who has to support a family of four on $60,000 a year. Well, that's the overall question that we've never really dealt with in this country. The fact of the matter is health costs are way out of control. And whether or not you're a family that is paying for health insurance out of pocket or if you're a small business looking to insure your employees, whether or not it's three employees or 25 employees, and, for, and I'm sure Alan can correct me on the number, I think it's 50, where, where the, when, when the employer mandate kicks in, um, that's part of the issue. And if you look at the numbers, the profitability, absent health insurance, of actual health providers is broken as far as what people can charge and this is pharmaceuticals, this is other health health providers of sorts, and this includes everything from medical device manufacturers, the hospitals, to doctors. Yes, all of these prices are completely out of control. Putting this entirely on the consumer is challenging to say the least. And at the simple economics of it, none of us are capable of making an intelligent economic decision on whether or not a appendectomy at $2,500 or $5,000, which is the right price. This is something that normal consumers cannot possibly engage in. And that's the reason the government needs to step into this process. Yeah, Obamacare is flawed, but the flaw is not simply at the consumer level, as the Republicans would have you believe. Jason Chavitz said, put off your new iPhone and spend that money on health care instead. Really? Well, it's not the iPhone. It's a matter of somebody being able to pay their mortgage. Right. And I think, I think Dan makes a really good point at the end there, which is, which is, look, there are all flaws to Obamacare. The question is whether the Republican House plan fixes them. And from everything I've seen today, I don't see the fix, right? It, it gets rid of the individual mandate, which you know, Alan said it was not perfect. Well, people paid the penalty instead, but it did get more people into the insurance market. To at a higher cost to the individual. At, at a, well, uh, I mean, at a high cost of health insurance, yes. Uh, but how a tire credit... Cost, you, know, you don't have a $100,000 traffic accident or, or have a hip replacement or something else along the way. There are other costs that insurance covers that Obamacare guarantees there is no maximum to. So a $10,000 hospital stay, while unpleasant, will not cause you to lose your house if the $100,000 medical procedure. Alan, Alan Moore, uh, in a continuation of the Trump White House stepping on themselves, CNN is now breaking news with reports that President Trump was quoted as saying that if the health care bill in the House does not pass, he has told GOP leaders that there will be a bloodbath, quote unquote. How does, how does that rhetoric help bring the civil discourse of trying to find a, a bipartisan fix for the health care issue versus just more demagoguery coming out of the White House. Is this helpful? Is this a shot across That's the unfair. bow? Don't make Alan defend the President of the United States. Make <laughs> a completely smart, rational person defend I, the irrational is unfair. I'm imagining I'm imagining one of the one of the emergency rooms that you see on the, on one of the T V uh 
uh, hospital-related shows with after after a, after a massive accident or plane crashes, blood everywhere, blood all over the place, um, and you wonder, well, whose blood are we talking about? I mean, no, that 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 kind of rhetoric is. <laughs> I mean, it, do you laugh or do you cry? Um, I'd much rather he'd be tweeting about bloodbaths among Republicans if they don't pass the bill than than uh, uh, than President Obama spying on him. Um, but but uh, the, here the, the the only hope for reforming the 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 current healthcare system, which is a mess. It's not all bad. But it's a total mess. Is if the is is if some Democrats can join most Republicans um, and say, here's what the, the Democrats would say. Here's what we did. Well, the, the Republicans would say we re, we repealed and replaced Obamacare. And those who say it's Obamacare light, well, fine, they can object. The, but the the Republican narrative is. We repealed and replaced, even though 90% of Obamacare, some pick a percentage, is still intact. And the Democrats would say, we fixed Obamacare. We don't care what the Republicans say this is. We fixed the Affordable Care Act, and now we've got something that at least gives us breathing space for going forward. And, and everybody contributed to the cause here. We didn't talk about the, 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 the taxes that, that mostly pay for, the, for Obamacare, which are mostly pretty, pretty heavy taxes on wealthy people, which means if you repeal them, it looks like a massive uh, tax cut for those same wealthy people who've been, uh, who've been uh, shouldering uh, much of the cost. We're spending around on the, on, in the neighborhood of $200 billion a year for Obamacare. And Alan. so when people say, gee, 20 million people are now covered, we're spending $10,000 per person on that coverage. Alan Moore, real quickly, is this an opportunity for Harry Reid in the Senate and Paul Ryan in the House to stand up to the White House and show Harry Reid is no longer in the Senate? Harry, 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 Harry Reid lives in a casino now in Las Vegas. Um, <laughs> Mitch McConnell, I met Mitch, Mitch McConnell. <laughs> is this an opportunity for Mitch McConnell and uh, Paul Ryan to stand up to the White House and show the independence of the legislative branch without having to hear the noise coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania? Well, so the Senate and the House are really different here. The, 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 the House has more ability to hold people together, um, but not, uh, not, not, without, uh, uh, with, not without constraints even in the House. Um, what 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 I could see happening is that the Republicans will somehow, through uh, cajoling and pressure and promises and freebies and so on, um, but without big financial earmarks, get a bill through the House. Then the real battle occurs in the Senate, where um, at the end of the day, you're going to need, uh, you know, you can do some of this stuff in the so-called reconciliation process where you only need a, a simple majority, which would be, you know, with 50-50, you get the, you get the, uh, uh, the vice president to come up and, and, and break the tie. Um, right. But that means you have to hold 
all of these Republicans in the Senate, and, and it's in the Senate where Rand Paul is calling it Obamacare light and won't support it. And there will be a few in that in that camp, at least until more changes are made. And then you've apparently got a few who say, I cannot in good conscience vote for a bill that I know is going to do harm to my state a few years from now. So right. there is an enormous amount of back and forth and horse trading that is going to have to occur um, before even they can get the, the, the those portions that they could do by a majority vote, and they and they can't do the some of the bigger things without without sixty votes. This is a long, tough, hard slog. It's not clear what the ultimate outcome will be. When the president says if they don't do this, it'll be a bloodbath. Um, he, one of the risks he he makes is. Sounding tough, which he likes to do, threatening, which he likes to do, and yet there's a great risk at the end of the day that he comes up empty-handed. So, uh, at least in terms of the, the demands he seems to be making. Now he's, as we know, very flexible <laughs> when faced with reality. Um, but uh, uh, increasingly, his threats are going to look like empty threats when he tosses right. them around like this. I want to let I'm going to let that be, I'm going to let that be the last word because we've only got about six minutes left in the show. Real quickly, uh, coming to the part of the show where we talk about what what didn't we get to this week that we can possibly get to next week. Uh, I want to start off real quick. Today, uh, apparently, WikiLeaks has put out a series of CIA correspondences that uses hacking to spy on people worldwide using their cell phones and their telephones putting Julian Assange back in the crosshairs of the federal government, but not painting a really pretty picture for the folks out at Langley. That is something that's about to really skyrocket. We'll probably talk about that next week. Uh, Dan Lipner, what did we, what did we miss this week? In Trump's America, the intentional walk is no longer the intentional walk. In the old days, you used to have to throw four pitches and to show that you wanted to walk somebody the likes of Barry Bonds or Hank Aaron. In Trump's America, the intentional walk, you merely need to signal from the dugout and say, give him the base. That is a tragedy for the national pastime. And by the way, intentional walk occasionally had a wild pitch and added something to the game. This is Trump's America. (laughs) Alan Moore, what did we miss? (laughs) I'm laughing at at, at the, the 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 poor um, uh, role of most presidents to to get blamed for things that they do and blame for things that they don't that happen on their watch. So the big thing I would say that that we're going to have to keep an eye on is uh, North Korea. Um, they uh, they are rattling their own swords in increasingly provocative ways. Um, you got an unstable leader. Um, you've got a level of desperation, um, and when people are unstable, desperate, and have weapons at hand, you never know what might occur. Um, they 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 shot off five rockets yesterday. Um, initially, when when they were observed, we thought it was a single rocket. Um, one of the five uh, d- just crashed uh, nearby, and the other four traveled hundreds of miles. Uh, 
uh, into the Sea of Japan. Um, th- this is uh, some of this is gamesmanship. Uh, some of it may be indicative of of, of, of a crazy person doing a crazy thing. Um, right. The the their their sponsor is the Chinese, and the Chinese got so angry after an earlier missile test and the assassination in a Malaysian airport of a uh, half brother of of the of the leader of Korea that they announced they were going to cut back the amount of coal that they were going to buy from Korea. That is the economic lifeline of Korea, which is an economic disaster. Um, uh, starvation is not uncommon in, uh, and, and without the, uh, the, the dollars or without, without the currency, the foreign exchange that comes from selling coal, they will be, even in even greater economic uh, stress and conceivably more desperate on the international stage. That's one to yeah. watch. Yeah. We're going to keep an eye on that. We're going to keep an eye on the, uh, on the intentional walk. Uh, also keep an eye on the CIA WikiLeaks issue. One other issue I'm thinking uh, moderator's prerogative. One issue that we didn't get to that I will probably want to get to is new DHS budget proposal coming out of the OMB and the white house cuts the coast guard budget to Minimal, minimal funding. It's slashing the Coast Guard budget. That is a national security issue. Yeah, it's personal to me, but I'm going to keep an eye on that. With that being said, on behalf of Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, special thanks to our good friend David Mortlock, former economic advisor for international affairs to the Obama White House, and special thanks to our hosts here at TG Cigars, 1118 9th Street Northwest, Come on by, come grab a stick. They'd love to see you. But we will be back live from the National Press Club next Tuesday for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This has been Backroom Politics. I am your moderator, Justin Russell. You can follow us on our Twitter feed, at Backroom Politics. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Politics. You can also follow our thoughts and comments on our friends over at Sidewire, Special thanks to John Allen and the folks at Sidewire for giving us a good shout-out last, uh, last couple of days. And we will see you next Tuesday here in Washington, D.C. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.